The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, annoying politicians, even more annoying politicians, some very wrong ideas, and a little bit of hope. Wednesday, the 26th of October, 2022. The Spring Series continues and Rishi Sunak becomes the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Uh, at least at the time of recording. So who better to join us than Scottish author and social researcher David F. Porteous? Uh, well, lots of people, probably, but David F. Porteous is who we have. In this episode, we talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. Everything gets lost in a sea of nothing, in a sea of banality. We discuss the chances of Britain rejoining the EU. It seems like we're much more likely to reactivate the Stargate at Stonehenge and try and trade with the Ewoks than we are to try and trade with Europe um, right now. And of course, we have to talk about certain recent events. Liz Truss absolutely was the shortest serving Prime Minister in 300 years of Prime Ministers. But we have to remember that she was also crap. And there's much more. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm state of Lenny Kravitz's underpants with David F. Porteous. Uh, it'll all make sense a bit later. Probably. The UK is set to have a new Prime Minister after Rishi Sunak won the Conservative Party leadership. The 42-year-old is set to become the nation's first British-Asian leader and the youngest Prime Minister in more than 200 years. I am humbled and honoured to have the support of my parliamentary colleagues and to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve the party I love and give back to the country I owe so much to. David F. Porteous, uh, welcome. What the fuck just happened? Uh, well, I suppose it depends how far back you want to go with this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've been making a series of, I think we'll call them unforced errors uh, for some mm. time now. Um, culminating uh, in the disappearance of Liz Truss, our uh, most perishable prime minister of all time, lasting a mere, I think, 46 days um, in office and being replaced. Uh, well, worth pointing out, she herself never won uh, an election. Obviously, she's only been in the job 46 days. What can you expect? Uh, but she was voted in by the majority of uh, Conservative Party members which is uh, 172,000 of what you would imagine as being the least representative 172,000 people you could select from Britain's 70 million population. I did see a figure that the median, uh, the median, uh, or median, the average age, I don't know which average, but the average age of Conservative Party members was 72 years old. That feels right. I mean wrong from a moral well, yeah, and practical well, yes. perspective, but it feels accurate to have said it, yeah. Um, so Rishi has come in without even going to that level. So there was a lot of politics over the weekend. Um, and essentially they set the, uh, the bar this time round for being a candidate for prime minister at a hundred MPs. 
Um, now, there are 340, I think, conservative uh, MPs in total. So this was basically them saying, we're not having the same situation we had last time where we had five people um, and then we whittled them down through debates and we ended up with two candidates that went out to the country. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be either two people or one person that goes forward. Um, there's a there's a minor technicality in that although the threshold's 100, you actually need 103 because you can't vote for yourself, you can't nominate yourself, and you can't second your nomination. Right. So you need 103 MPs to back you. And there's a whole thing about Boris. So... Uh, <laughs> that, that, that sentence contains <laughs> multitudes, right? So he was on holiday. Like myself, he was on holiday and rushed back to the UK um, in response to to events as they were unfolding. Um, and Boris, uh, his uh, his chums said he had uh, the votes. He had more than a hundred uh, MPs backing him, enough to get through. And it seems like he did, but then decided not to actually stand. So he rejected his uh, his whole sort of nomination, and that left the path clear for Rishi being completely unopposed at that point. Uh, there was another candidate, Penny Mordaunt, who didn't get the required number of votes uh, to go in uh, and has been kicking about for a while. Definitely a possible future conservative leader, um, mm, Penny Mordaunt. She's got the right kind of name. Time. Right skin colour, that sort of thing. <laughs> I do I do enjoy that the media are celebrating things like he's the first um, South Asian PM, he's the first non-white um, PM, he's the first Hindu PM, all these sorts of things. Um, as if this is, you know, a massive step forward in equality for these communities. He's the richest MP we've ever had. Not mm. just the richest PM, not just the richest Prime Minister, the richest MP there's ever been. He's not really advancing equality on any of the metrics that actually matter. He is literally a billionaire, and where much of that, although he was a successful merchant banker, I forget which particular uh, merchant bank he was involved with, but he married in uh, to the, what was it, the daughter of the founder of Infosys, which is one of the biggest IT services companies in the world. It's based in Bangalore. It has a revenue of more than a trillion Indian, is it rupees or rupees? I can never remember. Rupees, I think. Uh, that's about 19 billion Australian dollars or 10 billion uh, British pounds, uh, at least at the time of recording. Uh, so, I mean, as I say, he was doing all right, but he is now literally a billionaire if you combine uh, his wife's money in because, of course, marriage makes you uh, two, two people into one and your finances somehow... Uh, no, no, that, I, I won't, no, I won't go down that path, but he's doing all right. He's doing pretty well for himself. I do feel like he went shopping for uh, a much more well-off wife and did extraordinarily well. And yet mm. she must be very pleased about having a prime minister for a husband at this point. It would come they, in handy, you would think, well. yeah, to have the, the British prime minister in your back pocket, which you probably literally could given Rishi's stature. I literally just discovered his height today. Now, yeah. it, it doesn't change. He's five foot six. 
Now well, it that's doesn't perfectly average. Is uh, it as well? It was I in mean, Napoleon's time. As someone who is uh, as someone who's six foot two, I'd like uh-huh. to say that I am disturbed by the number of people who are six foot three and above. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the world needs to be slightly shorter. Um, I am very much recognizing the privilege that I've enjoyed for most of my life up until this point, and I would like it reaffirmed. I don't want it withdrawn. Okay, no, that 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 seems fair. Um, there, there, I mean, there's so much we can talk about here with the the richness. I, you, you mentioned some of the the tributes. Uh, there's a quote which the Times ran, the the Times of London, uh, which is uh, a quote from his local Hindu temple, where one of the elders there or uh, someone there said that this is the UK's Barack Obama moment. Nah, no, I think it's. <laughs> it's not is is the short <laughs> short way of getting to that what it comes down to is that he is he had the fortune slash misfortune of being chancellor at the time when it was necessary to do a huge amount of government spending during the pandemic like the finance ministers of every government in the world basically had to do to rule out increased public spending to make sure that their economies didn't completely collapse that's where he has somewhat of a reputation for popularity, populism, uh, however you want to think about it there. Um, but his instincts are somewhat uh, different than that. And he is a conservative and he is hemmed in on all sides by much more right-wing conservatives um, than he is, uh, certainly. Um, so the idea that we we are going to enter into an age of hope and change is delusional, essentially. I would think that the best we can hope for is that he does not that much for a couple of years until he's moved out. The worst that is likely to result is another set of austerity-based policies, which are just bad, proven to be bad, and were ruinous um, in Britain from uh, under George Osborne and David Cameron um, for several years there. And it's worth pointing out that public spending has never recovered. So after the financial crash, we went through years of uh, financial austerity, years of public service cuts, which did not improve growth because they don't uh, improve growth. And Uh, we haven't had that money come back into the public sector. So they're much smaller than they were in 2010. And the idea that you can continue to take money out without radically changing the social contract um, between the people and the government, again, um, borders on delusional. Well, what you need to do is discover iron ore in Britain and coal. Because Australia weathered those global storms by a very simple process of digging up a lot of shit out of the ground and selling it at a time when the global market prices were high. And then we just gave tax cuts to everyone instead of, you know, building infrastructure or investing in schools or, you know, well, any of that I mean- sort of thing. This was, in fact, the, uh, the plan. I think this was the plan A of Liz Truss. And it was weirdly not the tax cuts that proved to be uh, her downfall. It was uh, a bill that was... uh, The Labour Party forced a vote to ban shale fracking uh, on the Ah, Conservatives. 
And the Conservatives uh, chose to treat that as a confidence motion for government, chose to make it what's called a three-line whip, which basically means if you want to stay a member of the Conservative Party, you vote the way we want you to vote. Um, Now, Conservative Party members do not like housing being built next to them. They do not like train lines being built through their area. And they do not like it when their drinking water suddenly becomes flammable. And they don't like it when micro-earthquakes knock down the East Wing. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in fracking that they are absolutely not in favor of, and it's enormously divisive amongst the conservatives. And then whilst trying to force that vote to go her way, she literally manhandled her own MPs, forcing the resignation of her own chief whip, um, which pretty much happened in the in the voting lobby of the House of Commons, as I understand it. All fairly unprecedented stuff. You painted a stereotypical picture there of your average Conservative Party member. Um, That's basically true, though, isn't it? You know, a young city banker, and by city I mean the city of London, the financial and and, uh, money laundering capital of the the Western world, etc., etc. Well, Switzerland, possibly. Would, Would those young chaps and they're all chaps be inclined to join a political party or are they they too busy just making money and doing cocaine there uh there certainly is and that's that's the class that you would draw from but um the the age figures as you were mentioning there tell you a lot about what it is and uh, there is a conservatism which owes um a lot to uh, the sort of uh, Chicago school of economics. And there's a conservatism, which is a sort of small C conservatism, which is very much about um, not, um, which is about looking after things, which is about care for historic buildings, which is about care for uh, local environment, which is about uh, all those sort of social conservative um, issues. And the conservative party has long been divided um, internally on those on those two uh, fronts. Now, generally, they don't come into a huge amount of conflict with one another, but fracking is one of those issues that splits them because you have got most of the party membership and probably most of the voters who are conservative voters who are going, I absolutely do not want there to be this expansion of industry, this whatever happening near me, not in my backyard. Um, as we might say. Um, (laughs) Sure. Um, An enormous amount of that. And that's what made uh, things like high-speed rail very difficult and very expensive um, in England because of all of the objections and because so many Conservative MPs are impacted by these kinds of decisions. Um, Yeah, it was... was, uh, a lightning rod uh, issue. And Labour were reasonably smart to try and target it. And it had, I'm sure, one of the possible desired effects um, that it could have had, which was the downfall of Liz Truss immediately afterwards. (sighs) Those phrases, I I, I mean, you have been busy, you've been travelling. I have enjoyed the drama of of the last week, I, I must admit. Uh, putting aside, of course, there's all this weird racism about Rishi Sunak's rise to being the PM. 
Uh, we've also had the conspiracy folks kicking off. Now, uh, Shayan Sardarazadi, he's from the BBC. He's their disinformation um, correspondent slash analyst. Now, he says uh, that Rishi Sunak is being seen as a puppet of the World Economic Forum controlled by China uh, to erode rights by implementing digital ID and a social credit system. Now, I have discovered, therefore, a woman by the name of Anne-Marie Waters, leader of For Britain. Oh, I can see you groaning already. You know of this woman, don't you? Um, look, let's play the grab and then, and, and then we can then we can learn more about her. So, slimy Sunak is about to slither his way into Downing Street and nobody should be remotely surprised by this. Below I'm going to link to a video. It is entitled How Rishi Sunak Was Groomed by Globalists, Made a Puppet of the WEF and Appointed UK Chancellor. Uh, I don't vouch for this video, but have a look at it and maybe do your own research and make up your own mind. One thing I do know is that he is a billionaire snob. Um, his entire demeanour, everything about him, just screams privilege and complete out of touch. And yes, snobbery. He's also a globalist, outright top of the range, gold-plated globalist. And I know this for a couple of reasons. I can quote a couple of things directly. One, he was behind the push for a centralised Bank of England digital currency. And I will place a link to that below as well. So you know that the whole advancement towards global authority with social credit scores and, and complete, 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 complete loss of cash, complete loss of freedom, are spending controlled centrally. We are on the fast track to that and then we were, we're on it anyway. But Sunak is 100% on board with this. He is pushing towards this and wants to get us there faster. Yeah. Is he? Is that true? Is she? <laughs> Wait, hang on. She doesn't, she doesn't vouch for the information that she's putting forward, and now you're oh, asking right. me to do the opposite. Um, <laughs> well, um, I, look, do your own research, David. <laughs> do your own research. Sure. I, I find it interesting that that's not really how news should, should work. In like oh. the modern world, they don't say some things might have happened. Go and do your own research. I think they yeah. should stick to what they know and what they've investigated themselves. And I think everyone should adopt a similar kind of attitude um, towards this. It's worth pointing out that yes, for Britain has mm. folded as a political movement. So in July of this year, Anne Marie Waters. Um, published a sort of um, final notice on the site saying, oh, there's no more demand for nationalism in Britain. Boo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> which is, no, which is no, peculiarly no. delusional, but 
um, she was talking about the whole. She was talking about what she would call cancel culture for this whole uh, notion that you can't just show up anywhere and have a fascist rally without people objecting. Um, I think yeah, is probably, there's a lot of that. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of that running through the manifesto, which I did read. It's it's lovely thing. Yes, they, I mean, uh, they want to ensure the Union Jack is displayed publicly outside all public buildings. They want to actively bring an end to anti-white hate and discrimination, as well as quote the false concept of white privilege, and and freedom of speech. I.e., why 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 can't we, you know go on about the Jews. Yeah, I I feel like when you're looking at a cost of living crisis, when you're looking at um, a massive shortage of um, heating fuel, which might actually result, since Britain hasn't been stockpiling like other European countries have um, during the summer, which might actually result in uh, planned blackouts in Britain over the winter if things get particularly bad. And that is obviously when you want to have your planned blackouts um, during the, the worst uh, weather of the year. Um, when that kind of thing happens, what you really want to focus on is, is there a flag outside of my school? Is there a flag yeah. <laughs> outside of my <laughs> hospital? Is there a flag outside of my police station? I want to know that there are flags everywhere. That's what people in this country care about, except they don't. No one cares about that at all. Um, so it's <laughs> when she's looking for reasons <laughs> why perhaps she doesn't have the financial support to continue on this organization, maybe look at some of the, the actual policies um, that she's introducing. But the thing that I particularly enjoyed from her message um, of this party's closing down was um, they were saying that people were hostile to what they represented, which was, and I'm quoting here, a return to evidence-based policy based on a firm moral foundation. Now, I feel like she's building two bases there. And it's the logical workaround that they have to have on these things. It's like, we will do things based on evidence, and some of the mm. most important evidence we have is that we don't like brown people. And that is how that becomes part of their evidence base. So there's certainly some racism towards Rishi Sunak. You would just expect that. There's, there are going to be people who yeah. have these... These ridiculous views, um, it plagued Barack Obama. Likely it will be something that continues for a long time. And there will be all sorts of um, subtext arguments. And the difficulty is some of these things will be things that he should really answer to. Like the fact that there was a long period of time where his very, very rich wife wasn't paying tax in the UK. Completely legal as the system was, but you know, nevertheless dodgy. There will be questions about that. There will be questions about how he interacts with his, uh, with the Indian part of his uh, family, um, the part that is in India, um, and that will raise questions going forward. And all of that will be raised um, basically as an excuse to remind people that he is a non-white uh, office holder. Um and it will play to a particular uh, group of people in the country. Though it, it's unclear who would benefit from that, because these would be traditional conservative voters. You know, the Labour Party's not going <sighs> to 
do those kind of arguments. There isn't a Nigel Farage sort of credible um, third uh, third conservative-ish sort of party anymore. So, yeah, it's not clear who would benefit from this right now. Well, two quick questions to end. Very brief answers. Uh, on a scale of trust to Churchill, where does Sunak sit? Can't tell. You've got to give him at least 46 days. That's how you judge <laughs> yeah, the yeah. quality. We need to bear in mind, though, for this, that there are two important metrics here. Okay, You've mm -hmm. got quantity of prime minister and quality of prime minister. Okay, Now, right. Liz, Truss, Liz Truss absolutely was the shortest-serving prime minister in 300 years of prime ministers. But we have to remember that she was also crap. And we can't let her get away with just being remembered as the shortest-serving prime minister. We also have to include the uh, the quality metric in there as well. So we'll we'll give him a month and a half, and if everything isn't on fire, we'll say that he is at least the second worst prime minister in the UK. And from there, the only way is up. To be fair, we shouldn't like compare him to Churchill anyway because he's not about to cause famine in Bengal and the death of millions of people. Oh, well, uh, hang on. <laughs> you, don't, <laughs> you don't know. You early don't know. days I'm, yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, finally, on, on UK politics then, uh, I did in the last episode cite this YouGov poll on how embarrassed do you feel, if at all, by the economic and political situation in Britain at the present time. And the vast majority of people are embarrassed. 46% of those polled, which when you take out the don't knows, is more than half of those who had a view were very embarrassed. Another 31% fairly embarrassed. Are you embarrassed? Well, look, feeling embarrassed is the normal state of being for British people. So the, that 6% who are not embarrassed at all, those people are lying, I think. Or immigrants. Like mm, well, they could be. They could be, I suppose. But we want them to adopt uh, our ways, obviously. And embarrassment is the most important one. Simulate is the word you're looking for. Sure. Yes. The normal levels of embarrassment for a British person are not very embarrassed, which means you're unsure about which queue you should be in. There's mm -hmm. fairly embarrassed, which means you've already asked someone what their name is twice and you didn't hear them properly either time, so now you'll never know. And there's very embarrassed, which means your trousers have fallen down in the middle of the street and the vicar has seen your bum. Okay? Those are our right. levels of embarrassment. And the fact that we've got 46% of people who now feel that they've been seen in the all together by a member of the clergy is remarkable and unsustainable. We have to, if nothing else, we have to <laughs> somehow feel better about ourselves. We just have to. Otherwise, the whole thing is going to collapse. Like the United Kingdom, I don't think you'll be able to keep two streets together. Scotland will become independent. Wales will become independent. Northern Ireland will go back to uh, the Republic of Ireland. Leeds will join France somehow. It's all just... It's intolerable. What if what if everyone just normalised not having pants? Well, that's their, our only other option. It's a through-the-mirror um, sort of Alice in Wonderland type scenario where up is down and left is coffee. We have to 
finish this segment. We, I mean, we can't talk about Rishi Sunak without playing that magnificent clip of him being interviewed by two schoolboys. Um, do you prefer Coke or Pepsi? Do you ask everyone this question? <laughs> or not? <laughs> or not? <laughs> no, I'm really funny because I am, again, this is, so I'm a massive, uh, so one of these things that not that many people know about me. So I collect Coca-Cola things. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Coke oh. addict. Oh, uh, total a, Coke uh, addict. Yeah. Coca-Cola addict. Yeah, just for the record. Just for the record, just be totally clear. Uh, <laughs> I am a Coca-Cola addict. Uh, I have seven fillings to uh, show for it. Yeah, uh, so now, yeah, so now, yeah, so exactly, I'm yeah. getting in trouble, but, um, uh, but no, no. So I, um, I, I, uh, yeah, I generally do have seven fillings because I got through a lot of the stuff when I was yeah. young, which is very bad. So people should not, don't, don't, don't yeah. do that. Uh, but I now have one a week. I'm only allowed one a week now. So, um, but I'm a, I'm an enormous Coca-Cola fan. Uh, Coca, yes, I won't drink it. No Diet Coke, no Coke Zero, <laughs> never any Pepsi. Um, and actually, my favourite drink is is not even Coke. It's called Mexican Coke. Because um, you get it, it's this special Coke, uh, which is the only place in the world where Coke is made with uh, cane sugar rather than high fructose corn syrup. Mm. For the oh. people that are really interested in this kind of thing, <laughs> so if anyone's travelling in Mexico or uh, the southern states of America, you can get Mexican Coke. It tastes amazing, and I thoroughly recommend it. But only only one a week, so you don't end up with seven fillings. I should have really edited up that little grab of Rishi there. I'm a massive Coke addict. Oh, now I've done it. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Look, before I move on from Rishi Sunak, a couple of uh, final points. One is The Economist uh, has uh, some magnificent words this week. Uh, Rishi Sunak's first job, cleaning up his own mess. Uh, they call him a clever man with a penchant for bad ideas and how his achievements are achieved by standing on the shoulders of dwarves, which uh, you read it for yourself. Uh, and that figure that the average age of a Conservative Party member is 72 years old, uh, the fact-check site fullfact.org looked at this, uh, gosh, five years ago in 2017. That's how long this has been kicking around. No one really knows where this figure came from, that the average 72 years old. They say... This is uh, fullfact.org, say it's almost impossible to know exactly, but 57 is probably the best guess for now. Uh, They also found that uh, all the major parties in the UK have a similar average age in in the 50s. Even so. Next week on this very podcast. Uh, We finally got an episode about submarines, which I've been looking forward to for a while. And my special guest will be H.I. Sutton of Covert Shores. If you look up hisutton.com, you'll find him. He writes about submarines and open source intelligence analysis and and so on. Does some uh, some great illustrations of what we believe the interior of various submarines look like. So that's coming up next week. And if you're a supporter with trigger words or a conversation topic for that conversation, I'll need them by Tuesday morning. Okay, that's 9am on Tuesday the 1st of November, which is also Melbourne Cup Day. So don't get distracted. I will need them 9am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Tuesday to get uh to get into that one. 
Now, this podcast is, of course, made possible by you, the generous listener. And this episode, uh, it's thanks once again to all the people who contributed to the uh, the 9pm Spring Series crowdfunding campaign. Uh, you're all listed on the website, so thank you. But uh, I wanted to thank in the podcast this time uh, all the media freedom citizens who contributed a basic tip. They really they add up well. So thank you. You're listed on the website, as I say. Uh, thank you to Mark Cohen and Rowan Brackets, not that one, uh, who have bought a personalised audio message, although they haven't really told me what they want me to say yet, but we'll, we'll get back to them. And also thank you to the Foot Soldiers for Media Freedom, who gave a slightly less basic tip, as I call it. That's Andrew Kennedy, Benjamin Morgan, Bob Ogden, Garth Kidd, Jamie Morrison, Kimberly Heitman, Matt Arkell, Michael Strasser, Paul McGarry, Peter Blakely, and two people who choose to remain anonymous. Thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to join those people and help uh, make these podcasts happen, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. There's a very confusing explanation there, but there's plenty of ways to give me money, so why don't you pop over there? The 9pmedict.com slash tip. Trigger words, David F. Porteous. Time for some of those, as regular listeners to the pod will know. This, he says, holding it up to the camera, is the glass jar of transparency containing folded up pieces of paper. Uh, each one has a word written on it sent in by a supporter who gave me money in the hope that it will trigger a conversation. And the first one out of the jar is from Rowan Gladman. Hi, Rowan. Thank you for sending me that horrendous image of um, Boris Johnson the other day. Uh, the word is hope. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I feel like we've gone through a particularly bad period and we are still going through it, to be clear. Like, there are terrible yeah. things that are happening uh, all the time. And the um, the things I notice in America in terms of um, the uh, the abortion debate is oh, one of those God, yes. absolutely atrocious things and is going to get worse. And uh, it looks like the elections, uh, their midterms might not go um, as the Democrats had uh, hoped. And they might lose control of several branches of government so um things will escalate um i think um but things are going pretty badly in europe um because of uh, essentially you just uh, you cut off russian gas from europe and uh, everyone kind of panics um they are who knows what will happen with uh, ukraine um the point is all of these terrible things happen but they do prompt us to, to notice those more positive elements that are happening. And I don't think you could have hoped for a better uh, response to the Ukrainian refugee effort than we've actually seen um, across Europe. There's been an enormous sort of groundswell of support. People have been very well um, supported, very well looked after, as well as these things can happen. Remembering, obviously, people are fleeing their homes. It's never going to be a pleasant experience, but it's been managed um, fantastically well in uh, in all the countries I've heard any uh, information from. 
and certainly uh, in Scotland as well, we've been very welcoming um, to Ukrainian families or fragments of Ukrainian families. Obviously, mm. a lot of uh, young men, middle-aged men, old men are still in Ukraine, uh, still fighting. But that kind of response tells us something or should tell us something about the fundamental interconnectedness of human beings that we we genuinely can care um, we don't always, but we can care um, about people and we can make real sacrifice to help people. And I think that is, you know, a prompting of hope. I think we saw some of the same kind of thing happen during the pandemic, probably to a lesser extent, um, in fact. And who knows what will happen, particularly for us Europeans um, this winter. Um, we would hope that uh, we will display our best nature. Um, over that period of time. So the bad stuff always prompts hope, I think. That was really quite a, a lovely speech, can I say. And and I, uh, the things I notice about it, one is that uh, uh, being a Scot, you refer to yourselves as Europeans, which kind of is not a thing that tends to happen so much south of the border. That's an interesting... I, I, well, we voted to stay. We were like, and if we get a chance, <laughs> yes, we'd yes. go back tomorrow. Yeah, because it was all quite a good idea, really. I mentioned last time that that, uh, the first British new free trade agreement was with Australia, and it's like, well, so what? You know, we don't really have much (laughs) trade anymore. We're no longer sending you wool and refrigerated beef and things like that. Times have moved on, Um and it hasn't even been finalised yet anyway, but it did mean that, that Scott Morrison... Oh, I, I, I can't get that man's name out of this podcast. But Scott Morrison and Boris Johnson are there with a table, you know, showing Marmite and Vegemite and, and Australia, you know, things like that in the backyard of number 10. And it's like, that that's... No, it's that's fine. not a thing. The, it's not yep. going to be a Vegemite-led recovery for British trade. It's not. It's, I mean, we have Marmite. Which is different yeah. than Vegemite, but not that different. And you have Vegemite, which is different from Marmite, but not that different. And mm. people like what they like. So there's yeah. never going to be... You can get Vegemite in the UK, and I'm sure yeah, you can sure. get Marmite in Australia. Must you certainly can. To. There is there is an ethnic section in each supermarket. I uh, well, was well, recently... I- I've got two <laughs> things I want to say here, okay? I was recently in, in the US and finding... In the British section of supermarkets, mm. the most amazing thing in the British section of supermarkets, which was um, Indian uh, sauces in jars, and I'm just like, yeah, that that is British cuisine. You've you've but, absolutely but, but, got but that. Most of those are are made. I mean, they're made in Britain. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, it, but I, it's not the way that we would think about it. The idea that they would think British food. Um, and put it next to all kinds of other sort of British stuff, stuffing, you know, that kind of thing. But well, the well, other British thing... British Indian is a whole separate cuisine from Indian food. Sure, yeah. It's food of the empire. And in Australia, there is a particular thing called Australian Chinese food, which is modified Canto food brought by the people who worked in the gold rush and the Chinese traders during the Victorian era and so on. And every country town in Australia 
has its Chinese restaurant and you know it's going to be on the menu and it's you show it to most mainland Chinese and they're kind of, what the fuck is any of this? But it, it is something that everyone in Australia will recognise. It's kind of modified global Canto food. It's very similar, of course, to the Chinese food in the United States for the same reason in that the cheap Chinese labour was there during the gold rushes. I'll tell you what, I found American Chinese food quite distinctly different from UK Chinese food, which yeah. I thought was uh, surprising. Like, I thought it would be, I didn't think it would be Chinese. I thought it would be, obviously, it's just what it is. It's an Americanized version of Chinese. But what I what I wanted to say was this whole notion of, yes, the, the EU, and in fact, being just in being just a member of the single market, enormously beneficial. And literally, the problem that we have right now is that we, the Bank of England has said this, we do not have access to enough labour. That's the main thing that's holding back mm. economic growth in the country. We have, at, at one point it was like 2 million, I think, job vacancies, something like that. Way, way more than the number of people who are um, unemployed and seeking work. Um, essentially, by an, an order of magnitude. I think it's like four or five times higher than the number of people who were seeking work. So it's, um, in a sense, that's good. But in a sense, it's like bad. We can't, we can't <laughs> fill these vacancies. And Rishi Sunak has a button that says, grow the economy. It's a big red button that says, grow the economy. And he can just press it. And what would happen if right. you pressed it was that you would uh, massively relax your immigration laws. And then you would just get people who would come in and take all these jobs and uh, add to the uh, economic growth of the UK. Mm -hmm. um, Make money, spend their money in the shops. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, problem, the problem is that it would result in him... Uh, being ousted immediately from the Conservative Party mm. um, because you have a group of Conservative MPs called the European Research Group, the ERG, um, who have something like 100 members, more than the government's majority. And That's they have Jacob Rees-Mogg's little mob, isn't it? It is, yeah. Mm. And they have basically said that if there's any government backsliding on the trade deal with Europe, which doesn't exist, but on the arrangements with Europe, then they will basically detonate the Conservative Party. They will uh, ask for a general election um, to take place, and they would get it. And because most of the ERG members are, are lunatics, essentially, who are all in very safe Conservative seats, they would sail through the next election, but everyone else, as the polls stand just now, would be more or less obliterated um, by it. So change the character of the party forever, if not uh, completely destroy it. Um, but it, it, it always seems bizarre to me that this isn't one of the things that we are actively considering like right now. It seems like we're much more likely to reactivate the Stargate at Stonehenge and try and trade with the Ewoks than we are to try and trade with Europe um, right now. Which is a pity, because the scenario you outlined is gorgeous. But I hope, still, I hope that uh, things will get better. <laughs> Thank you, Rowan Gladman, for that little injection of hope. We'll do... This one. Oh, Miriam Mulcai. Thank you, Miriam. Uh, poetry is the word. Oh, wow. 
I used to write poetry. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not well, but I did it. Um, and That's I like feel most like, poetry, to be honest. I think so. I think we should be very grateful that fire exists, um, because <laughs> that's certainly what should happen to most poetry. Not full-length books. Don't burn full-length books, but like poems. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, lot of fire for poems. Um, frankly, I would feel very. On the other hand, on the other hand, <laughs> I think b- burning books has has got a bad name now. It's got a bad rep, and yet. I think there are certain books that uh, no. Let's not go down that path. Hey, look, maybe uh, Dan Brown. Liz, you know that uh, Liz Truss and her uh, former Chancellor Quasi Quartang wrote a book together. Oh God, did they? They did. I mean, I haven't read it. I and I don't know what it's called. I assume the title is uh, Total Fucking Nonsense. Um, but they they wrote a book together. Um, I don't think it was a book of poems. It was very much how they would run the economy if they were in charge of uh, Britain. And then having written that book together and then having tried to implement that policy when she came into office uh, and when he was appointed as her uh, chancellor, she then sacked him to try and save herself, saying it was all his idea. And I'm going, but you've written a book together. I mean, it's literally... Uh-huh. Right there, you've done the equivalent uh, as adults who work within the same organization of doing what besotted teenagers might do. You've written poems to one another uh, in the form of nonsensical right-wing economics. Okay, I mean that's one aspect of it. The other aspect I love, I love of this the books that probably will end up being burnt is this new biography of Liz Truss that was originally scheduled to come out in uh, early December uh, by the Sun's political editor, Mister Cole, and the a Spectator writer. So uh, obviously it's a, it's a bit of a hagiography, but it was called Out of the Blue: The Inside Story of the Unexpected Rise of Liz Truss. Of course, it's now retitled The Unexpected Rise and Rapid Fall of Liz Truss, and it will be coming out as an e-book next week, Tuesday. I, I mean, I like that. I'd like to propose a, a tiny change to the title, The Unexpected Rise and Expected Fall of Liz Truss. <laughs> like, yes. if, if they're writing this book and they're terribly surprised about everything that happens to her after she becomes Prime Minister... I think they're kidding themselves on. Um, I remind you again, The Sun and The Spectator. Sure, sure. You know. They They have got this weird thing. They have got this weird mummy fetish, honestly. All of these, like, right-wing journalists. They were mad for Thatcher for, like, 20 years after she was kicked out of office. Like, Theresa May... Uh, I'm always reminded of her Crush the Saboteurs headline in the Daily Mail, where she's looking very glam, um, like almost a full front page photo of this woman looking uh, as fabulous as she ever did. But not particularly, because she's, you know, a middle-aged conservative politician. None of them are going to win any beauty contests. And they're just desperate for it. They're just, they're genuinely hungry. And the way they're not for... Um, Boris and the way they weren't for David Cameron 
uh, and in the way they weren't, they won't be for Rishi Sunak to just have, you know, this female powerhouse uh, in charge of everything. Dominatrix, dominatrix, absolutely. I think that I think that's what they're looking for. Jermaine Griotard. She again was uh, is she's not dead, I don't think. At time of recording, we haven't. Oh, had you a, just a, killed her there, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, we do this all the time. We, I thought the I queen know. was going to live forever. Yeah, and I said she's going to live forever, and then suddenly, yeah, Liz yeah, Truss see, kills her. Liz Truss, yeah, probably with poison, maybe with COVID, but she's definitely dead. So, <sighs> well, is she? Look, we had like. 47 days worth of mourning. 98. We were mourning for 12 years. It was a very long time, <laughs> however, however long it was. Australia went not longer. Dead, we're we went kill longer. <laughs> it, it, it was funny. You had your 10 days of mourning. And Australia, like, there was a guidebook, of course, but no one had revised it in years. And so we went for 15 days. And we actually, you had Parliament recalled so everyone could pay their respects. We had Parliament cancelled for 15 days. I, I don't know why. So, so they could mourn, and I'm picturing all of these MPs spending 15 days with the sackcloth and ashes. Nobody knows why. This is the, this is the thing. It's been so long since anyone of that sort of social importance had died, and it wasn't yeah. uh, the last one. wasn't her dad. The last one was probably Churchill, mm-hmm. um, actually. Um, that there really was. Um, you could say that Diana obviously had the the massive public outpouring, and they had the same problem. That actually, we don't know as a society what it is we're supposed to do. So people were wildly hysterical when uh, Princess Diana um, died, and I still remember um, a lot of that sort of. 97 I think it was all of that kind of hysteria that lasted for a very long time and the state funeral and Elton John doing a song for her and all this uh, kind of stuff and it's because we just we were just throwing everything at it and I think it was the same thing with the Queen it's like do we suspend football matches do we not suspend football matches alright we'll suspend them in case someone in the crowd boos when we play like God save the Queen or something like that. You know, in case one person in a crowd of 40,000 makes a bit of a ruckus um, when this happens, we'd better suspend everything. Um, and I think we probably well, do. Well, the IRA decide to have a bit of a go, although they don't now. But Nah, they're all too well, old it, now. <laughs> yeah. But um, if we just had like a, a guidebook, I think that would be very useful. Instructions on the death of uh, an important person of, like, ten things that you're supposed to do. Oh, the people in power have it, of course, you know, Operation London Bridge, etc. But, what? yeah, us punters, sure. what, what are we meant to do? Yeah, um, and I think there's probably, um, I think you could have, uh, if you'd already had the book in the shops, you could have sold loads of them um, at the time, like instructions on what to do on the death of an important person, and it's just here's the ten things that you're supposed to do when the Queen dies. Too late now. The problem, Miriam Mulcahy, is that I never really got into writing poetry. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so I hope that conversation uh, is adequate. Perhaps when someone dies, you should write a poem about them. Perhaps that's... I'm sure people did that for the Queen. So there you go. I'm sure they did. We even have a poet laureate to do that. Let's do... 
One last one. I, I mean, if we wrote over time, we don't have to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter, although we probably do because it'll be the end of the fucking universe. <laughs> Rick Heyman, hi Rick, has sent in the word transparency. They're all, this one is serious there. Transparency. God, I mean, we were going to talk about the well-being budget, weren't we? And it's we weird because that actually is one of the really important things about transparency for for these things. Um, when I think about what we've experienced for the last several years has been um, opacity of um, government um, pretty much globally. I should say that what we mean by the well-being budget, this was a buzzword that was being kicked around before Australia's budget night last night, that this would be a well-being budget. There were notes that uh, New Zealand has already put this in, and then I noticed Scotland and Wales as well, as, as well as Iceland and a couple of others. And I was going to ask what it meant, but transparency is not something... I had considered as part of this. So a well-being budget. Please continue. Yeah. So as I was saying, what I, what I think we've had is like not enough transparency around a lot of the decisions that were made, a lot of the information that was being used to make decisions. And um, the consequences of that have been a sort of collapse in trust of uh, vaccines in the US, even worse than it was before, because the uh, the nature of uh, medical information is such that it nature of science such as that it shifts as our understanding shifts and that was never appropriately communicated to people and so we have um, everyone going well you said a and now you're saying b therefore I'll never trust anything that you ever say again um, and that's what happens when you have a finished pronouncement that comes down on a tablet of stone um, from the mountain when in fact the situation is never cut and dried in quite that way and we've been reluctant to involve people in that sort of um, understanding and we see the same kind of thing that happened with um, Brexit and the arguments that followed on um, from that and uh, essentially when we are infantilizing the electorate or infantilizing people. What we end up with is this situation where they have um, hysterical and disconnected from reality uh, sort of views about a range of things. Um, and some of the antidote to that is um, more transparency about what you're measuring, more transparency about what the targets are that you want to actually get to, um, and more discussion about um, honestly, some of the failures um, when you can't get what it is you're trying to get and why that is the case. And that is one of the things that is peculiarly, perhaps not peculiarly, but um, often absent from these discussions with government. It's always a case of one politician criticizing another politician. Um, it's never a public discussion about why a particular line of policy didn't work particularly well and what we might do differently um, in relation to that. Um, so the, the well-being budget, something really um, interesting. It is to say we have all of these traditional macroeconomic generally indicators, things like productivity, things like economic growth, um, which reflect how well the economy and therefore the totality of government action um, 
how well a country is actually going. And the suggestion is that there should be other indicators that fill in along with these things. Now, it is worth pointing out that everybody has always set well-being budgets. It's probably um, a little bit of branding that's going on here because everybody, every country on earth spends something on education. So they're looking at, we spend this on education because we want to get these outcomes. Everybody spends something on healthcare because they want these particular outcomes or they're trying to address these particular problems. But there probably isn't enough prominence that's actually given to what it is we are trying to do with these things. So um, in Britain, we would certainly recognize that the NHS is something that is very valuable to us and we care about number of doctors, we care about number of nurses, we care about nurses' pay, we care about things like waiting lists for uh, particular operations. Um, But it's much more difficult to convey information like what is the quality of patient care? What is the experience of being in a hospital? What is it uh, like to deal with the pain after an operation? What is that total sort of experience um, like for an individual? So there's, um, even amongst big things that we all understand reasonably well. There aren't necessarily metrics in place to measure the real effectiveness of this. And the NHS is a really good example of that because waiting lists are something that were um, a bugbear of many governments for a long time um, and were certainly the things that attracted most attention because it's very easy to say, what is the number of people on the waiting list? Has that number gone up? Has that number gone down? What is the average length of time that that person is waiting? Has it gone up? Has it gone down? And use that as a way to explain whether or not that service was succeeding or failing, essentially. But it is a very narrow measure. That figure, hospital waiting lists, it's a thing that exists in Australia, of course, uh, Australia's medical system. It's not structured like the NHS, but it has the same broad aim, at least it did originally, of a universal healthcare system. Uh, One of the things valued in Australia. Uh, And yes, hospital waiting lists are a thing. Uh, How long you wait at an emergency department before seeing someone uh, is a thing. How do you measure this, though? I mean, you're right. If if you, you measure with metrics, and as soon as you have a metric, that becomes the thing that is measured even if it's irrelevant to the total uh, end result. Like we had during the the pandemic, it's suddenly how many people have been tested today? And uh, that's not necessarily the right thing, particularly when you compare it to yesterday or tomorrow and you're looking at these tiny little ripples uh, into what is a system that has lags in it of up to two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, well, let's talk about this slightly more broadly, first of all. If you're looking at how you would construct a set of indicators, you'd think of them as being a basket of indicators. So um, Scotland's done this um, with a a national performance framework. um, And certainly I've seen city level stuff from lots of other places. Um, New York has um, something like this in place, which is updated reasonably regularly. Wow, in the great People's Democratic Republic of New York. (laughs) That's right. So you look at 50 or 60 different indicators and you say, oh, you try to provide data for all of these things and you um, just measure them. But unfortunately, every single indicator um, behaves in exactly the same way. So uh, if you say that, um, for example, let's say satisfaction with patient care 
just off the top of my head. I don't right. know if that's a real indicator, but we can all imagine that being a question that you would ask someone um, and that you could do it for everyone who has an operation and you could report that collectively. If you die during the operation, how do you report back your dissatisfaction? It's an interesting question. Mm. Um, I'll tell you what. As, so I'll tell you uh, what. A, that means you, if, if you kill everyone, there's no dissatisfaction, is there? That's it. Yeah. Did you survive? So you think Are you about ways. Butte and you don't. I know how to do this. Yeah, you think about once that becomes the indicator that you care most about, you can do all kinds of things to manipulate it. Waiting lists is um, an easy example to understand. So, for example, you'd say you have a waiting list of a thousand people to get a particular operation, and every two months you write to everyone that's on your list and say, do you still want that operation? And if they don't write back to you, you take them off the list. Well, they may be dead or they may just have missed that particular letter or they may have gone better. There could be all kinds of reasons for it that you could justify that process. Yes, your hip magically grew back. (laughs) The point point is that your behavior there has nothing to do with treating patients. It is all to do with managing that indicator. Um, And that's pretty much it. Um, And you can apply that to everything. So when people say we want to do a well-being budget, is it being driven principally because they've looked at productivity and they've looked at economic growth and they're saying, actually, this is either something that we are unable to address or something that we are unwilling to address? Um, Or is it because they have a genuine commitment to doing uh, this other thing that they they're doing and they also want to address um productivity economic growth the the main things um and ultimately what a lot of this comes down to and this is a fairly right-wing thing to say but a lot of the other indicators are very strongly tied to the economic well-being of a population if you're looking at literacy rates it's pretty strong. If you're looking at crime rates, if you're looking at basically anything that most people care about, a reasonable proxy is, do the people in either this community or this country, whatever, do they have enough money? Do they have enough food? Do they have enough housing? Um, If they have all of these things, they're probably going to be fine in relation to education. They're probably going to be fine in relation to mental health. They're probably going to be fine in relation to drug use. All those other um, kinds of things that might slip into a basket of social indicators. Um, So the challenge for Australia will definitely need to be, um, can we make, are these things that we're measuring really important? Do we have policy aims to address all of these particular things? And how do we make sure that we're not just fiddling around with the indicators and actually making real change for people? And if you can do all of that, please let us know how, because I don't think <laughs> we've managed it. Well, you, you mentioned it is a branding thing too, and it could just be a branding. I mean, when you, you look at the, the details of the budget itself, it, 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 it has all the usual things in it. Uh, and I'm going to skip a segment where we went through all of the terrible buzzwords, but I, I, I'll just mention a, a few of them that were in there. Resolute and resilient, practical and pragmatic, it's responsible economic management, it's responsible, affordable and sustainable, it's solid and sensible, bloody, bloody, blah, budget repair. 
on transparency, I do want to say that there was a, a magnificent line in one government report, and I can't remember the exact context, but uh, it was one government department explaining why they they had not been releasing drafts of various documents uh, before dropping this finished policy. And everyone went, what? Is that to have done so would have caused, quote, unnecessary debate. <laughs> Good. In Good. Media, that does not... Yeah, yeah, that does not feel like uh, being driven by transparency and enormously common, enormously yeah. common around any kind of decision making. Oh, absolutely. Whether that's you know local yeah. government or national government or anything. Do you know what one of the one of the best examples of what you would be trying to avoid with doing that? And it's not like valueless. Like there, I, I'm not completely rubbishing the notion that you might need to keep things secret for a bit while you work out what it is you're actually trying to do. If you know you're going around the table and someone says, "Look, what if we eat the poor or something?" Um, <laughs> yeah, you don't put that out immediately. You yeah, say, "Well, right. which poor? How uh, many?" You yeah. know, you want to work that out first. Yeah, of all. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but. Um, but it's it, the the argument is around like defund the police. So uh-huh. this was the the narrative that came out very uh, alongside the the Black Lives Matter movement, and the phrase was defund the police, and it became an absolute godsend for um, opposition to yes. reforming um, police structures, police um, the social justice justice systems, crime, all that um, sort of thing. Um, but if you look at the the underlying um, principles that people talk about, it is things like well, actually, um, if we were doing a well being budget um, approach, you would say, well, can we take some of the money that we're using for um, prisons? Can we take some of the money that we're using for um, the criminal justice bit at the end, the outcome management bit of this, and say, can we move this back? Um, in the in the timeline of these events, and use them to prevent these things happening. And when we start to talk about these things as being all of these words, responsible, reasonable, and targeted, fair and future focused, when we start talking about this, this is the underpinning philosophy. That actually, what you're saying is, um, if you can persuade someone to play football rather than become a mafia don then that's clearly something that you'd want to pursue. And it probably costs you a great deal less by doing that rather than just waiting for their uh, schemes to come to fruition in 20 or 30 years' time. Uh, And that's the other problem, isn't it? Actually getting people to plan 20 or 30 years into the future. It will happen, I suppose. Thank you, Rick Heyman, uh, for that, uh, that trigger word, transparency. Something completely away from politics to finish on now, I think, or at least the first one, Lenny Kravitz, famous musician. David, there's a a headline the other day, why Lenny Kravitz does 50 to 75 rep sets with his 15-pound dumbbells that he carries in his luggage. Okay, so apparently this is a fact. Lenny Kravitz takes his dumbbells with him in his luggage. So the headline... Why does he do that? Now, I have a theory. I think he does that for exercise. 
it's a controversial theory. Um, I oh. read the the article, mm. and I feel like it was broadly unanswered as to why he did it. Um, may I suggest that if he put two twenty pound dumbbells in his luggage, they might be overweight for most of his uh, journeys. That's true. But what if he didn't take any dumbbells at all? Well, he'd have room for much more, you know, clean underpants, um, a shirt. I don't know that Lenny Kravitz is walking around with unclean underpants. Certainly, the the manufactured images that we're looking at just now of Lenny Kravitz, um, he is not wearing a shirt. I, I feel like, yes, you could definitely get several shirts in the space occupied by 15-pound dumbbells. The thing that would bother me um, is that I don't think this is particularly good science, like for Lenny Kravitz. Like, the idea that he would do a 50 to 75 rep set, firstly, why are you doing a 50 to 75 rep set with anything? I feel like the science is fairly strongly behind the idea that you would, to maximize your impact, you would have somewhere between an eight to 12 set sort of range. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it would depend on the weight that you're working for. I just, you know, you're trying to get as much as you can possibly do. And sometimes you want to do this until failure. And sometimes you want to um, just do whatever the, the particular set is. But I can't imagine that he's got a reliable amount of weight um, that he's lifting all the time. Like, sure, he's traveling with 15 pound dumbbells. But then the question is, is he doing like three sets of 50 every day? Or is he doing like two sets of 75? Or is he doing one set of 64 and one set of 72 and one set of 51? Is it all just, is it all over the place? Is it crazy Um, in terms of his metrics? I think he'd find it much easier if he was just using the gym at the hotel that he's staying in and there will be a gym at the hotel he's staying in. <laughs> yes. Or he gets, you know, different dumbbells uh, for himself at home. And I think that's also something that he could afford to do. I don't understand why I know this still. I don't understand why I know he does this. Well, I, I'm looking at you through the camera uh, all the way <laughs> where you are there, in, in the Edinburgh, in your room. And... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that 75 rep sets with 15-pound dumbbells feature strongly in your average day. Oh, sir, oh. I'll have you know, I'll have you know that I work out three times a week with my personal trainer. Oh, I do three hours of um, training. I'm and so sorry. Whilst I am, whilst I, you're correct in that I do not look like Lenny Kravitz, um, you've well spotted. Insert quick thing. The thing that really brought this story to my attention was that it's illustrated with two pictures of, as you say, a shirtless and unbelievably buff Lenny Kravitz exercising in his room. But because there are no photographs of this this incredibly newsworthy event, uh, you know, photo. There's a you know a failure of photojournalism right there. Uh, this this website 
has got hold of some AI renditions of Lenny Kravitz working with dumbbells in his house. Um, and we'll come back to that. So, look, I, I do know a little bit about what I'm talking about okay. in this kind of space. And it just seems it seems weird that he would do it. It seems weird that I would know about it, that anyone else would care about it. Uh, but mostly what seems weird is that he has no face in one of these pictures. It's just... Oh, that's true. I mean, I think he also maybe has no hands. It's a very strange... Like, there's a lot more detail in the room, other than Lenny Kravitz, for it to be picture of Lenny Kravitz. If you'd, if you'd said that the AI had an instruction to generate a mostly beige-coloured room, then I would say that was a good result. If you'd said, do me a picture of Lenny Kravitz, I'd go, hmm. I mean, the hair's fine, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> the beard's pretty good. Uh, yes, there, there, there is one end of a set of larger weights uh, just sort of hovering above his foot in one of the photos. Um, it's, look, it, it, have a look at it, people. It is, um, I particularly like the idea that, that we are right at the point now where... If we don't have pictures of something in a news story, and I look, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm. Can I stuck. just? Can I just wait? Can I just advance a notion here? Okay. Sure. How how would we know if Lenny Kravitz was fat or not? We'd Google it, okay, and we'd look at the first half a dozen results that Google yeah. has. Yeah. And what I'm saying is, it is well within the. Uh, abilities well within the wherewithal of multi-millionaire Lenny Kravitz to make sure that the first half a dozen results on Google show Lenny Kravitz as being an attractive man. I think yeah. Lenny Kravitz could be 350 pounds, could never lift anything. He could have like a weird, weird body with like tiny little noodle arms and like all Prince. he needs to have done like well i mean let's not speak ill of the dead um, but yeah sure like prince um we'd never know so look the ai has generated these images where lenny kravitz looks really buff but who's to say that all of the other images that we see of lenny kravitz aren't massively curated to make him look that way as well it's a fair point um i'm just looking at the images on google now and yeah, he's all right. He's all right. Anyway, enough about Lenny Kravitz. Uh, let's move on to some other celebrities. Here's uh, a news report from CNN this morning. It looks like Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter may be back on. Here are some of the potential winners and losers if Musk does end up taking over the company. Let's start out with some potential losers. One of the biggest losers is Elon Musk. After months of trying to kill this deal, it now appears the deal is back on and he'll be paying a premium for Twitter. He'll be inheriting a company that's facing a number of challenges from business issues to regulatory pressures. Another loser is Twitter's staff. There's likely to be a shakeup in the C-suite with Twitter's CEO almost certainly losing his job. He'll get a big payout, but there'll be lots of Twitter employees who will be stuck dealing with the uncertainty from this takeover. Another loser is content moderation advocates. Musk has indicated that he wants fewer content restrictions on Twitter, and online safety experts have raised concerns that this could lead to more harassment, more false information, and other problematic content spreading on the platform. Now let's get to the potential winners. 
One of the winners is the Twitter shareholders. Twitter shareholders had already voted to approve this deal. It's clear that this is something that they want. The deal price that Musk agreed to had always marked a significant premium over where Twitter shares had been trading. And on news that Musk had renewed intentions of following through with the deal, share prices spiked. Another winner is the lawyers. Both Twitter and Elon Musk have hired some of the country's best mergers and acquisitions lawyers, and they're about to get paid handsomely no matter how this deal turns out. Perhaps the biggest winner could be former President Donald Trump. After being banned from Twitter in 2021, Musk has indicated that he could bring Trump back to the platform and get rid of permanent bans altogether. If Trump decides to return to Twitter, it could give him a platform of millions that he hasn't had since being banned from the platform and could have a significant impact if he decides to run for president again. And it might not just be Trump. Musk has indicated that he wants to get rid of permanent bans on Twitter altogether, so we could see other banned accounts returning to the platform as well. So, Donald Trump, there's something to look forward to. The uh, the key thing in there is that uh, Mr. Musk, patron cunt of this podcast, uh, does have until the end of this week to sort out this mess. Are you looking forward to uh, all of this, David? What I'm curious about here, mm. I have I have been uh, suspended from Twitter on two occasions. Oh, okay, yes. And both of them are your fault. Um, <laughs> they- Everyone keeps <coughs> saying things are my fault, and I don't understand why. And the reason is both of them were as a result of me tweeting at you. We were having a conversation (laughs) and I used the word that you just used just there, which is the word cunt, which is a perfectly normal Normal. word in Australia and in Scotland. Yeah. And yet we are moderated by people elsewhere. So essentially, Twitter has suspended me on two occasions for, I think, hate speech with regard to you. So there you go. <laughs> but that that would have been said and, with love, or at least oh, it, they, pra- yeah, yeah. No, no, they've misinterpreted the intention. Yes. In fact, I don't even think that either of the uses of. The, in fact, they weren't. They weren't directed at you. They were merely being used conversationally, yeah. as these words are used. Like um, Elon Musk am, is a cunt, <clears throat> and indeed, you shouldn't be banned for saying that either, because it's factually correct. Mm. Um, so. Uh, my concern, my interest here is what are the words that <laughs> Elon thinks people should be using more of, but they're not allowed to use just now? Because if that's it, then fine. That seems like a sensible change. But if there's like other things out there, if he's, I see Elon Musk's tweets, okay? He's not saying anything that is going to get him banned. What is it that he thinks he's not allowed to do? What is that? I want to see the actual stuff. I want to see the stuff that is currently resulting in people getting permanent bans. And then I want to say, does that feel reasonable or not? And I feel like his completely open approach to saying everything is going to be fine feels weird because everything is not fine anywhere else in the world. Like, you can't stand in the street and say anything you want. You'll get yourself arrested. Indeed. And, uh, of course, Yi, formerly Kanye, uh, who is now a colleague of Elon Musk in the sense that Elon Musk is buying Twitter and uh, Yi is buying Parler because he's put off Twitter. And now, well, you know, because he's now going all 
anti-Semitic, which is a thing that's happening, although I did see the news uh, this morning uh, that Adidas have finally cut their ties with Kanye Yee over that anti-Semitism, although it took them a, a week, so now... It looks like, oh, they don't mind the anti-Semitism. They just, they just don't like the bad press they were getting as a result of it. This, I think, falls into this kind of sphere of if everyone else were more responsible, then everything would be better. And I think uh, Kanye yes. West, Kanye West is unquestionably a musical genius. He is, he just is. He's massively talented. He produces enormously high quality work. And should be regarded as one of the the musical greats of of all time. He just happens to want to get rid of the Jews. But other than that, he's mentally ill. He's obviously, clearly mentally ill. And we should not be, we shouldn't be promoting, we shouldn't be reporting on uh, his views. He He probably shouldn't be allowed on Twitter on the grounds that all he seems to do is injury to himself. As a result of this, and and whereas most of the time I feel very uncomfortable uh, medicalizing and certainly diagnosing someone from afar, if for no other reason that I'm not actually a doctor, uh, which may come sure. as a shock to you, but he has spoken about it himself, and and friends and colleagues who who know for a fact have said so. So yes, yeah, it's it's all very open with regard to to Kanye, and I think you look at what happened with uh, Britney Spears for years. Oh, yes. And um, Britney, seems to, Britney seems to be as sane as anyone who finds themselves uh, a Hollywood, uh, you know, a media star. Yeah. They all seem a little bit mad, but she seems as sane as uh, any of them and certainly shouldn't have been denied control over her life in quite the way that she was. And yet there's Kanye, who is, you know... The thing is, when Kanye goes off his meds, it makes news. It makes news. No one's mental health should be reported on in that way. No one should be out there having that very important um, relationship with healthcare providers, relationship with um, people in their lives who are affected by their mental health, reported on, scrutinized, um, in that kind of way. I don't think he, as I said, I think he does himself a great deal of injury. I think he probably does more to stigmatize people with um, mental health conditions than mm. most other people because of the way he behaves. That's a fair comment. And given you know his, his wealth, I always wonder why do they not have people who tell them things? Is it because they're surrounded by sycophants? I suspect in the case of a famous music star, that's the case. Uh, certainly it's the case with Elon Musk. Everyone, you know, fanboys to him. And he's, you know, you you say something publicly again on the Twitter against Elon Musk and, and see what happens, particularly if you're a woman, particularly if you're a woman of colour. So I think he will be enormously unhelpful for Twitter. Frankly, I think... I, I'm not sure what the the price is that he's actually looking to pay. I remember it was like forty billion dollars. Um, yeah, at some point forty-four billion discussion. was kicking around. Twitter is not worth that amount of money. Just to start off with, 
There's no, it's never going to return that level of investment in it. Um, I think Twitter itself has really struggled with how to deliver value from what it's actually doing. Um, the fact that it's being reported, that it's losing its most active users, um, isn't surprising. I think there's something about text-based media, which is perhaps being challenged more and more as mm. Wi-Fi connectivity, as 5G mobile, as all this sort of stuff becomes ubiquitous in everything that we're doing. The simple fact is that you can get access to video and audio content much more easily um, than you could when Twitter started this process, uh, when, when Twitter um, began. Um, so I, I don't know that it has legs in the way that I would look at even something like Instagram, but certainly you've got to be looking at TikTok um, as the way forward for all of this. And I think as that spreads, there will be more sites like TikTok, which will do basically the same thing. Um, but you'll find older and older people will begin to accept getting tidbits of information in exactly the same way that Twitter delivers this through an audiovisual format. Um, now, I think it's young people predominantly at the moment, but it will be older and older um, as time goes on. If for no other reason than those people themselves get older every year. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. But uh, yes, yeah, so those figures this morning, it's a Reuters story, uh, apparently, uh, yes, yeyeah, struggling to keep its most active users is Twitter. What they're calling heavy tweeters... They're less than 10% of users but account for 50% of the revenue, revenue being, of course, advertising. Um, and that's, you know, the metric for all of this is eyeballs times time. What struck me as really quite challenging is that this definition of heavy tweeters are people who log on to Twitter six to seven days a week, sure, and tweet three to four times a week. Uh, in my case, it's a couple hundred, maybe, a hundred, hundred, so... Uh yeah, I mean, a heavy tweeter, first of all, sounds like something that you can get a special pad for from the chemist um, if you're, like, tweeting a lot. Um, but Well, I'm reaching uh, that age. I, <laughs> that, that does not feel like a lot. No. I'm, I'm, if this... If that is 10% of Twitter's user base, if only 10% of Twitter users are actually logging on basically every most days, day yeah. and mostly and doing like a handful of tweets in a week. That is not an active platform. I mean, that really exposes the pyramid for what it actually is. It's got to be, if that's 10%, there's got to be, like you've got to be in that 1%. You've got oh, to be absolutely. in that tiny number of people who are actually generating most of the content that is on uh, Twitter. Yep. Yeah. I get that. You've got a few way up there which are not necessarily tweeting a lot, but they've got, you know, 4 million or 10 million followers or whatever it is. Um, I mean, I get that. I have, I don't know, I think it's 20,000 followers or something. It, it, the order, a, a, a couple of tens of thousands is the kind of numbers that someone who does journalism to a small level gets that's kind of about it it's about what you'd expect in the same way that if someone's on a tv show in australia they'll have 100 to 200,000 whatever you know it's just the kind of scale sure. of it certainly 
I I notice that there are there are people who will occasionally comment back at me, and they're, they're often quite toxic, of course. But when I look, you you can see that they very rarely tweet themselves, and when they do, it's really to complain about something. They don't generate any fresh content. So why would you follow them? And, you, you know, they don't have many followers. And that's not to criticise them in any way. That's just the dynamic of it. That you, It's the long tail effect. A few people generate a lot of content and then a bunch of other people follow that content and comment on it. And then way down there are people, oh, I'm bored, I'll look at Twitter. Oh, you know, that politician said something I don't like, I'll... I'll shout at them. Can, can I be honest with you here still? I'm, yeah. I'm feeling attacked right now. Feeling very attacked. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but at least you use whole sentences and things. You don't, you don't just respond to a tweet by going, yeah, right. I can't imagine what these people who are, who are engaged in that actually think that they're doing. Mm. Because you must know from looking at Twitter that anything, everything gets lost in a sea of nothing in a sea yeah. of banality um by and large i don't understand why um there is this kind of uh attraction to being part of that twitter mob and there is an attraction to it there is something about being part of a group that is going after something that you see as unacceptable behavior whether it's because it it doesn't matter what it what it is like uh. elon's uh, flying monkeys are behaving in exactly the same way as any other group, which is going after you know things that we might find uh, unacceptable. Um, in exactly the same way, they're they're being driven by the same motivation, which I think is to be part of something. But all of that is completely artificial, mm. and human beings respond to stimulus all. Living mm-hmm. creatures respond to uh, stimulus, and I think Twitter cannot, as a mechanism, maintain the quality of return for someone um, in the way that something like TikTok um, is able to generate um, a much more, let's say, endorphin-rich experience. So I, I do think they're on a busted flush, and I do think this is a kind of inevitable decline for them. Is a busted flush that thing you get the pad for at the chemist shop? It, you can get that as well. Busted busted flush, heavy tweeting, <laughs> um, seepage, just in general. I think seepage is an excellent word to end on. I mean, it's just such a... We've, we're, yeah, all right. John Birmingham pointed out when he was on the pod the other day that I get to this point in the podcast and I just go... <sighs> At the sense of, <laughs> all right, uh, fuck off, uh, no. all right, That's yeah, you get to. fuck off. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, transparency in podcasting—you should just get to a point and you should just say, "Fuck off," right. or you could have like a little sign that you hold up for your guests and just go, "All right, fuck off now." <laughs> all right, David F. Porteous, fuck off. Thanks. <laughs> Can't believe you called me fat. That's all the edict for now. Please support this podcast uh, by subscribing, obviously, uh, going to the 9pmedict.com slash tip or just tell your friends. The next episode next week is about submarines. So get your trigger words and conversation topics to me 
by the morning of Tuesday, the 1st of November. Until then, I'm still Gary and wash your hands. I think we should be very grateful that fire exists. The 9pm edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.